Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Delson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, co-founder of Battlefin, leading data platform, and a former institutional equities trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Massioli, founder of Trade the Chain, former head of institutional prime brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, former co-host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and co-founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. Welcome, B3 Nation. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain. We do this Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time at Get Rev Radio with a special weekend edition Sundays at 5.30 Eastern Time. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Tweet out the space. Share it and follow all of our amazing market masters, John, Alex, Mark. Good to have you guys. And good to have everybody out there listening. We've got a big day, as always. Lots going on. We're going to talk about Bitcoin bouncing back up at 31. We're going to talk about Lordstown Motors, the an early EV maker filing for bankruptcy. We're going to talk about the Fed, what what we're going to Mark's new favorite segment, what will J Powell do? Mark Lepresti, good to have you. Let's give a shout out to uh the Money Show, our our host, our our sponsor of our show today. Yeah, thank you, Rob, as always for the introduction. This is uh I think our last Shout out for the Money Show virtual event that started, I think, today, the 27th. No, it did start today, which, of course, is their mid-year portfolio review. People that have listened to the show in the past few episodes have heard about this fantastic event. There will be some uh, very impressive speakers helping individual investors become uh, smarter, uh, better, more empowered, help them navigate the markets. As I think I mentioned the last time we talked about this, John and I will actually be doing a fireside chat on where we think the market's going directionally for the balance of 2023, a topic that we're going to touch on today. This is a complete, uh, completely free event. It is virtual. You can join it from anywhere. And I see up in the crow's nest is a link, the call to action, as we call it in the biz, where you can click right to the Money Show's page, sign up, register for the event. You'll get a link you can join. Highly recommend that you do. Always fantastic content that's coming to you from The Money Show, their mid-year portfolio review. So I now. Mark, let's talk about markets, where the market closed, what stocks have been moving. And I know you can't wait to talk about what Jay Powell is going to do next. And listen, the market seems to be responding accordingly to what you to what you guys have been saying, like they're expecting a little more rate hike. Well, you know, it, it, it totally depends on which part of the market you ask, because as you know, Rob, we covered this a little bit, actually maybe more than a little bit on Sunday's show. We do have this inverted yield curve. We do have these signs from the bond market that are giving signals that are different from the signs that we're getting from the equity market, particularly today. And look, I'm always happy when markets close in the green, as they did today, all three major indexes notching up a win, snapping that retracement that we saw that started, I guess, on late Thursday of last week, Friday, and into yesterday. The uh, tech stars leading the way, NVIDIA, Microsoft, other big tech names. But Rob, even interestingly, particularly interestingly to me, Consumer discretionary stocks, Delta Airlines boosting its guidance I, against all odds, in my humble opinion, uh, stock closing up almost 7%. Uh, 
the uh, NASDAQ and the S&P put a full percentage point on the board. The Dow, for its part, closed 200 points higher. So that's a pretty bullish day. Um, uh, not, uh, you know, blockbuster numbers, but solid gains. Um, anything that's uh, positive from the consumer discretionary side is just absolutely uh, death-defying as far as I'm concerned. We'll touch on that when we talk about, uh, you know, what, what, you, what you're up to now, J-Pal, which I think isn't going to be another one of our funny little segment titles. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, look, the market, I think part of the overall uh, positivity is a couple of things. And I want to turn over the, the TradFi update to John to hear what he was looking at today. Um, but I think it's a combination of a couple of things, Rob. I think, number one, the breathing of a sigh of relief over the fact that we don't have, you know, a complete and total disaster uh, in Russia. Um, actually, a good thing in, in most always that Putin remained in power. We don't want, you know, breakaway states with control of nuclear uh, weapons and, and no real uh, ability to understand, you know, who's in charge. That, I think, a bad thing. A bad also, of course, for oil markets and commodity markets in general, if that had happened. So we've got a little bit of what I'll call a Russia relief rally, the triple R. Maybe somebody can trademark that one. And I think we've also got um, some positive green shoots from that. You know, we're starting to see some signs of dis disinflation, right, which is what uh, j Powell wants to see. And maybe these disinflationary indicators will lead him to potentially only rate hikes by 25 basis points between now and the end of the year instead of the full 50 that I've called for. I'm not changing my opinion on that. I still think we got 50 bips in store between now and when Santa Claus comes to town, but it did look a little bit better for those like Dr. J who hold a different opinion. So I'll turn it over back to you, Rob, to get John's input on this. Yeah, John, of course, you know, you weigh in on this. And, and to Mark's point about inflation, just also address in your mind, you said this before, everybody. He's, John has said this before. It, it's Jay Powell crazy to think we're going to, they're determined on this 2% number. We're probably not going to get there, right? Again, it's all in the measurement, Rob. Um, as John Rutledge was saying last week, Dr. John Rutledge, um, it's dependent upon um, how accurate the data is. Are we really correctly pricing in rent um, if indeed people that own homes aren't subject to that rent um, and a majority of Americans do? Um, I think that's one of the big issues. I mean, he said it's nearly 40 percent of their inflation gauge is that increase in rent. Most of us would say rents in many cities, not New York. Obviously, New York just hit a new high, by the way, Rob, $4,300 a month is a new record high for New York City. To live in a closet. Yeah, <laughs> for living in a closet um, with lots of crime and all the rest of the fun stuff. Uh, Starbucks and urine, you know, that, that smell permeates New York throughout the summer. It's, that's how you know it's summertime in New York. Smells like Starbucks and urine. Um, but... Uh, Nonetheless, the rent input number has come down dramatically, and except in, you know, just a few isolated cities. And that is something that, you know, when you ask me, could we get back down to 2%, as John Rutledge said, we're already there. It just depends if you're using good data or not. Um, but the other part of what you wanted me to cover, I think, Rob, is, okay, um, Home prices increase again. Um, that signaled that the recovery in home prices um, is indeed uh, lasting. It's not just a blip. It was, of course, the top performing sector in the S&P a week ago. Um, it continues to move higher here. We've got Toll Brothers, TOL, and uh, Darden, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, DR Horton, which is symbol DHI both with unusual activity, both went higher. And then we've got this Enovix Corporation, which we had some pretty strong unusual activity in just over a week ago. And uh, the U.S. Army gave them a big contract. And, of course, as uh, whoever had that information 
whether it was Paul Pelosi or Alex Mascioli or whoever, um, somebody acted on that uh, information a week ago and they reaped the rewards uh, today because the stock moved up by 21%. Uh, let's see what else, Rob. Um, AEL, which was uh, halted yesterday, had a very strong performance today because of uh, Brookfield uh, basically putting in a bid for them. Don't need to belabor that. I don't know how many of us have really been moving into that insurance space, but nonetheless, a big upside move. Unity Software, same thing. And all they had to mention was that they're adding AI to their platform of software. And then uh, Walgreens Boots Alliance was one of the downers today because they said that uh, consumers are worrisome. That uh, The direct quote was, um, consumers are being challenged uh, at the macroeconomic level, therefore we are lowering our guidance. So those were all things that we thought were pretty interesting, Rob, but that we certainly um, expect to hear more of that mixed bag. Some doing really well, like home builders, and thank God for that, because they're the largest employers in America. And then uh, some of these uh, other chain stores not seeing a very strong consumer, rather probably seeing a consumer that's trading down to generics rather than name brands. And uh, probably about time for our friend Alex to give us a, tri uh, a crypto. Right. It, it, it's time for a crypto update, Alex. Hey, wait, real quickly, though, John, just before I, I do that. You know, you talked a lot about the chip, like advanced chip makers. I was fascinated looking at, at, at you know, what you were saying about Enovix. Like, it's an advanced silicon battery company. Is that like Duracell on steroids? Like, what, what does that even mean? I get it. They're making stuff for communications, for soldiers, thus the Army contract. But is that a whole new space? Like, just the same way there's advanced chip making. Now we got advanced battery making. We got advanced EVs. Absolutely. And in some cases, um, those batteries are, of course, lithium. Um, but in others, uh, 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 this case, for sure, for the Army, these are silicon-based, as you say, and a very advanced silicon battery. Um, now, I don't know how that uh, translates into more dependable or if it's just more durable on the battlefield, but that contract was pretty big, and it's certainly a big move out of the stock today, Rob. Alex, Energizer Bunny Crypto, Bitcoin's on the rise. What what do we see? It's been a good day, right? Yeah. It, it, listen, it's not been so bad. A decent day in the crypto markets. Uh, as we see total crypto market cap up 1.4% to $1.9 on a moderate $36 billion in trading volume. Um, Bitcoin faring uh, well as uh, it's up to uh to 1.4 um 30,654 another day of positive trading volume up three and a half percent per average uh with 16.2 billion trading hands um ethereum gaming gaining almost two percent to 1890 try the 1900 and stick with it um but not quite being able to do so and i know nick's gonna come in later in the show and and uh give what that outlook's uh looking like but uh, a lot of people excited for that to to flip over that $1,900 range. Trading volume up on the ETH, 17% versus average of 7.7 billion moving around the last 24 hours. Um, but I want to revisit some of those DeFi outliers from Sunday's show that we mentioned. Uh, we have permissionless DeFi lending protocol, Compound Finance, sticker COMP, up 15.5%, with average trading volume soaring over 460%. Uh, versus average as it hits four, $41.80, $41.80. But the big, big win of the week is Serum, ticker SRM, low latency DEX or decentralized exchange, which has fully on-chain central uh, limit uh, order book and matching engine. I covered Serum SVB3 show twice, which is up now 140% since Thursday, reaching 155% earlier today. And Mr. Jay would say, Hey, there's your alpha for the week, folks. Um, well, Nick, we, you know, and he's sitting in my living right room, the show as well, uh, about ten, 10 feet away from me, and he yells bang right after me. In case you heard an echo, it, it, it's the bang, it's the echo of the bang, it's the John Nigerian signature bang. 
Um, Nick Mancini, um, you know, Alex was talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum both, you know, hitting, you know, the, the Ethereum just under two, Bitcoin just under 31. Give us your sense of the magic charts, but also, you know, does it, it does seem that Ethereum and Bitcoin tend to kind of chart the same way, almost like they kind of are, you know, two lanes moving pretty much the same direction at the same pace. Is that is that too simplified? No, you are correct. It's not, you know, it's never 100% one-to-one as they call it. Um, But Ethereum certainly is a high beta asset compared to Bitcoin, which means that if Bitcoin moves, Ethereum is typically moving with it um, with a little bit more volatility or at least similar volatility. So um, when we look at Ethereum and Bitcoin price action um, last week, I noted that 31K uh, was a very significant level for Bitcoin that it needed to flip to move higher. And we talked about 1930 being that significant level for Ethereum. Now, if you've been checking the chart, we've tagged 31K a couple of times uh, since we last spoke and uh, and we have been unable to break it. So that is still, you know, I love to say it, my line in the sand for both bullishness and if you've been listening to me and any of the other shows that we do been saying that this is the week that I would expect things to cool off a little bit I'm not a bear but I'm not a bull either and I'm thinking you know some flat to downside trading is likely because again remember we have the end of the month and we have the end of the quarter uh, all at the end of this week and typically you know from I'm sure Mark John and Alex know this you know much better than I do but Typically, that is a weird week in trading, and and Bitcoin and Ethereum seem to be no different. So 1930, Ethereum needs to break above to move higher, and 31K is that magic level for Bitcoin. There you have it, from the desk of Trade the Chain. Thank you, Nick. Follow us at GetRevRadio. Let others in on the adventure that is the B3 Nation, and follow all of our hosts. Mark Lepresti. Nick Mancini was talking about the end of the, the we're literally at the mid, mid-year mid point. The first half is behind us. We had two very bullish first quarters. What are we looking for in the Mark Lepresti, you know, crystal ball? Are we looking to end even higher as the third quarter, fourth quarter? Are we going to see a dip in the third quarter? Because, you know, kind of what Nick was saying, people suddenly cool off for a minute. I thought some of the interesting things that were going on today were quite frankly the uh the filing for bankruptcy of an ev maker because tech has been one of the the hot spots obviously elon has just reaped the rewards of being the biggest ev maker on the planet and his stock has just exploded higher um threatening to push all the way through to new 52-week highs, but Lansdowne, not feeling that love, Rob. Lansdowne was one of these situations where they are uh, forced to file for bankruptcy, and that is something in uh, the EV space that is so hot right now that is a rarity. Uh, Obviously, during the uh, regular automobile surge, from 1900, let's say, roughly, for the next 50 years, there were thousands of car makers, and many of those either got absorbed uh, into the likes of General Motors or went away uh, because they couldn't compete, quite frankly. But the fact that Lansdowne has been forced uh, into bankruptcy protection, at least it's protection for now, the question will be whether or not that becomes uh, liquidation or they're able to reemerge uh, with protection. Well, let's talk a minute about Lordstown Motors, John. I mean, you know, everybody, there's a little, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Guys, if you remember, that's the company that, that Trump, President Trump kind of touted. They were an early in, in the EV market. They had that truck, I think it was called the Endurance. They came to the White House. They're saying they're doing this because they had a, a deal with Foxconn, that the Taiwanese manufacturing giant, and Foxconn didn't put the money in. Do you buy that, John? Is that what this is, or are they not able, in your mind, to just be competitive in, in the market space? Well, you know, according to the press, Foxconn said that it had um, hoped to continue discussions to reach a solution that would satisfy all the stakeholders. Uh, again, without resorting to uh, baseless legal actions. 
Um, Mark would have been the better guy to comment on baseless legal actions. Not that he's been part of that, but I'm sure he's certainly had to defend clients that have faced something like that. In other words, Foxconn is saying, well, lads down, you're not really going to get anywhere with us. You're just going to drag this thing into court for a while and feed a bunch of lawyers. It's not going to result in a, a solution here. But uh, they did pay the first $52 million under that deal last year. The next payment was supposed to be right around $47, 48000000 million, and it's due uh, within 10 days of regulatory approval um, by the uh, Foreign Investment uh, Communications Group in the United States. Um, I I don't know where that stands, Rob, and whether or not that means without that 47 that they really have to sell off pieces of the company. But again, um, Lucid just got that great deal yesterday with Aston Martin, um, basically, obviously, the one of the few remaining um, supercar companies that didn't have an EV that it could put on the on the uh, streets. Uh, and now, because of this partnership between Aston Martin and Lucid, they will. And the Lucid vehicles are uh, very uh, much in the vein of a supercar. They look um, not just like a commuter vehicle like most of the Teslas, but much more like a supercar. And again, Alex can probably comment on that. Yeah, Alex, you should, because Alex, no. Alex, Alex well, was a NASCAR team. But, but Alex, let me, before you say it, let me ask you, do you, when John talks about supercars, do you yeah. see this possibly the EV market becomes a thing where those who survive other than Tesla and maybe even Tesla have to market with traditional car manufacturers and they both need each other. And then we create a whole new kind of supercars of the future. Well, listen, I mean, that's a great question, Rob. And the thing is, uh, running a car company and manufacturer is a very expensive undertaking. Um, you know, John, the Aston Martin deal uh, with Lucid. And, you know, Aston Martin is one of the few independent car manufacturers left in the world. It's owned by a, a PE firm, private equity, uh, that acquired it some years ago, right? So it doesn't have the backing of, say, Jaguar uh, Land Rover, which is uh, Tata Motors, which essentially has a, a, an open blank checkbook. It does not have the bank accounts of General Motors or Ford. So when you're looking at Aston Martin, you're saying, hey, we need to compete in the sports car level uh, with an EV. You know, Ferrari has the Ferrari La Ferrari. Uh, Porsche has their car. Um, and Aston Martin's always been highly regarded within those uh, those rankings. It's, uh, you know, it's much easier to streamline it by partnering a company like Lucid uh, to get that job done, to be competitive and to think about the future. And what's not the 1990s? Uh, Elon Musk did it with Lotus on on to to get normal bodied cars for his electric engine he did it in the reverse kind of way um and lotus uh lotus elise is where the uh, primary platform for the first, uh tesla which uh, back in 1997 um so yeah i think this is a, this is a great approach for aston martin i think it's a, a great headlines for lucid uh particularly where you know their numbers are falling um as far as a company it's it's hard to keep the business going and i think this will draw more attention and more capital to here's a question and by the way everybody mark lepresti is only quiet because he's been twitter bumped him off we're getting him back on but but john and alex if there is a big u.s car maker that is going to fail which would it be would it be gm ford uh, you know nobody or or have to really transform themselves I think it would have to be a catastrophic black swan event at this point, really, for uh, one of the top uh, three American, uh, you know, automobile companies to fold. They've, they've been into electric cars uh, and, and studying them well before even uh, Elon Musk was. Um, and 
you know, the conspiracy theories are that they purposely kept them out of production, or some of them had a few of those in production, took them out, and, and years later, finally produced it under uh, a lot of pressure. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is that I, I don't see how one of the three automakers could fail at this point. I think they're ready to try to battle it, um, and it would have to be a big misstep. What I will say, uh, and I, I want to make a note on what John was talking about with Foxconn, um, is is the fact that, and I see Mark's back on, or yeah, Mark's back on. I want to get his opinion. Um, you know, Chinese companies are a huge counterparty risk right now. You talk about a company having, or what they're saying, uh, file for bankruptcy uh, protection because of one of their suppliers, main suppliers being Chinese. Um, I think American companies or companies in other places around the world need to take heed and analyze where their counterparty risk is going to be for their business because China could could very well sever any relations uh, depending on how political movements go. That's a great point, Alex. And Mark, you know, remember Dr. Rutledge was talking a little about how we may be overestimating China in some ways. Everybody's looking for the China partnership on the business side. Alex has a point there. And to the bigger issue I was asking Alex, Mark, you know, we've rarely seen companies survive centuries. Our automakers have been around for over a century, and yet they seem like they are going to survive the transition to whatever the cars of the future are. Yeah, I, I I think I think that's a, a fair statement, Rob. And apologies, uh, I'm I'm as I think a couple of you know, I'm I'm driving, fighting traffic on the East End, trying to get um, myself and a couple of VIPs here in the car out to Hamptons Tech Week, uh, where we've got some really fantastic fireside chats and panels and things of that nature. That um, a featured speaker. I'm very excited about that. And for some reason, um, apparently the Long Island Expressway does not warrant um, adequate cell service between Manhattan and the Eastern Long Island because I guess, you know, there aren't enough people with dough that need to get connected via their cell phone. Um, but look, I, you know, I don't I don't think, you know, the big three are, are in any kind of trouble in terms of existential trouble like what happened with Lordstown. They're all making uh, significant and meaningful moves into the EV space. I still think Tesla dominates. I think this Lordstown thing, while I never viewed Lordstown as being a significant um, uh, competitor to Tesla, although their truck was a hell of a lot better looking than the Cybertruck, let's be clear. Um, I, I think this is, uh, you know, sort of a, 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 a pimple on Tesla's back that's now gone. It's nice to have it out of the way. I think it's a good thing for Tesla. And the only thing I'll mention is, you know, it does give a indication of how some of these upstart EV players in a post-Silicon Valley world, in a world where uh, venture debt financing is 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 not as uh, robustly available as it once was, as valuations and things like EBITDA and actually making money on things you sell become more important to investors and to the market generally, I think you're going to see companies like Lordstown that were really relying on their continued operations for funding, uh, in this case, uh, from Foxconn, that if that doesn't come through, you know, they're just they're just dead. They're dead in the water. It's game over. They could see that happening with other of the EV competitors. Um, what do you, what do you think back. happens? What do you think happens to um, to Lordstown now? Are they they declare Chapter 11. What happens? Does somebody pick yeah. up their assets? Yeah, well, I mean, there will be a sale to satisfy the creditors, right? This is an eleven nine seven, so it's a it's a game over type of a scenario. It's not a reorganization, um, and uh, I, I don't really know too much about what their hard assets are. Rob, you know, they they fell way, way, way far from their um, expectations at around this time last year that they deliver a hundred a hundred thousand of their. EV cyber trucks this year. I think there was basically zero chance of that happening. So I, I think it, it becomes a fire sale. Look, this is unfortunate. This was a company that was hoped to be employing a fair number of people um, in their plant uh, in, in Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. I know this was a. Yeah, they bought the that, GM. They bought the they, GM. They brought the it's GM. Named, yeah. It's named after them, uh, the town. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I. Actually, have in the back. I can't start not having the back seat. One of Ohio's most prominent investors, 
Um, and if I could pass the microphone to him, he could give us our opinion on this. But I think he's sleeping. Let's do it. it, 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 it can't wake him up. Wake him up. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. No, I was just going to be, I was just going to say it. If you hear chickens in the background, that's again, just John in the, the living room uh, calling. Um, the, uh, <laughs> there could, there could be some interesting IP uh, to pick up. I'm curious on what your thoughts are with that with Mark. I mean, I know a lot of these EV vehicles, um, you know, in, in theory, the, they operate uh, the same way. Um, but do you think yeah. that they're so different uh, in their technical parts that it, it's worthless? Or do you think that this could help out another company? You know, unless Alex, unfortunately, um, you caught me a little flat-footed here. I don't know enough about Lordstown to tell you if they had a particularly unique um, and, and must-have part of their technology uh, as it relates, and, and it's usually related to the batteries, right, or the or the battery connection systems. The the sled, as it's called in a lot of the EV world, is sort of that you know chassis drivetrain battery combo that a lot of even the smaller, smaller Lordstown upstart EV manufacturers are essentially you know modern day coach builders, right? They they buy a sled from somebody else. They don't have unique battery technology. They design and build the cab and the interior features and things like that and drop it on top. I don't think that was the case with Lordstown, but but unfortunately, I just don't know enough. John may know. I don't know enough as to whether or not they had some you know potential uh, game changer in terms of their battery technology or some other valuable IP. Interesting, John. You you have you have a, you have an input on that or no? I mean, it's a great conversation, right? And I was reading a little on it, and I I remember them saying that they were trying. You know, a, a, there was a lot of talk at, a few years ago about what they were, you know, about that they were trying to bring some new tech into the process. So that's back to Alex's IP question. Yeah, I don't know what the uh, uh, IP might be. Um, we we. We've all seen uh, both General Motors and Ford join onto the Tesla structure for their supercharging um, and the design for the charge into their EVs. Uh, similarly, uh, if the battery tech from somebody like Tesla ends up being the standard, again, you can only imagine how uh, much further it would push Tesla down the road ahead of all of their competitors. How is that, guys? Is that is that a space, an industry space? The, you know, we were talking about the advanced silicon batteries, John. Is the EV battery space a pretty competitive space outside of the car makers? Like, are there companies up and coming or on the horizon or, you know, startups that are trying to sort of develop a, a better battery for, for lack of a better way to put it? There are some that are trying, um, but really just Panasonic uh, and I believe Samsung. Well, Red's you know, you know what'd be interesting, Rob. Um, I, I I love the electric car conversations, uh, particularly because Mark is uh, just whacked it out of the park with uh, his his Tesla uh, trades in and out um, this year. But the thing is, is I, does everybody remember a couple of years ago when iPhones were switching and there was all these different uh, battery charger connectors? Um, I'm, I'm curious on whether the EV market is going to streamline into a, a synchronic call for various, uh, you know, uh, operations of the EV vehicles where they're universal. So let me ask this, since we're talking about EVs, Let's talk about OPEC for a second um, and oil. I mean, so there was, you know, obviously this whole thing with the attempted coup probably made people worry about Russian oil output, right? Um, what's going on when we look at, you know, global energy demand? And obviously, you know, we are still in a fossil fuel world. So what is that looking like, you know, right now? And, and, Clearly, we didn't have what happened in Russia, but how did that? How does that affect OPEC? How does that affect oil prices in the commodity side? Well, I, I just want to comment on this real quick by saying that uh, you know what happened over the weekend in Russia and the turmoil, the you know potential turmoil that was about to happen, 
Um, I, I would say that everybody is kind of breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, you know, that, that would have upended it. Uh, oil, the oil market and prices uh, globally. Interesting or whatever, what John Mark's statement is on this. Yeah, John, are we seeing, I mean, is OPEC is going to continue to be what? What percentage of the world's energy do they provide? It's got to be pretty high, right? I mean, it's got to be over 20%, right? Oh, yeah. It's, I believe, still north of 35% OPEC and OPEC plus. Um, but one thing that's kind of gone uh, under the radar, perhaps for some, my brother Pete was talking about it for the last several weeks, was nat gas, because natural gas began the year at about four dollars and eleven cents or something like that, traded straight down to two dollars, um, so lost obviously half of its value because the winter that people had anticipated being potentially a cold winter with massive demand over in Europe, turned out to be just the opposite, a very benign winter, which was lucky for the Europeans. Um, but because of the way gas had been stockpiled uh, and not used, there was a glut of natural gas. Um, and what we've seen since, Rob, is that uh, in the last month, Natural gas has basically flirted with $2.25 per million British thermal unit, or BTU. And once it blew through that, it traded all the way up to $2.80. Um, and now, um, still up in those high $2 uh, ranges, um, the question is whether or not demand takes it to and through $3.00. Um, this is not really the time of year, except for the instant-on power plants that have heavy demand when it's hot and people demand electricity for air conditioning and so forth. A lot of that demand is met by natural gas. So I would imagine the last few weeks in Texas are probably why we're seeing natural gas prices spike the way they have. If it stays hot in the United States, um, it will easily push back through three dollars. Uh, so, as much as OPEC, as to your question, Rob, um, controls an awful lot of oil, primarily some natural gas, but not really. Um, it's a question of what kind of weather do we have on this side of the world, uh, where our demand is going to be high due to the uh, temperatures that have, in some cases, been pushing up to records. It's I mean, that's oh, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. Rob, what I, what I think was interesting for me, right, about these statements from OPEC was around what their expectation is for the increase in global demand for oil between now and 2045. You know, we've got this constant cacophony of talk around greening of the planet, reducing our uh, dependence on fossil fuel, municipal, local, and state programs designed to eliminate fossil fuels by 2030, 2035. By the way, it's just bulls, bears, and blockchain Twitter spaces. We do this Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, 5.30 Eastern time. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Follow all of the speakers and, and stick around for the Beyond B3 show afterward where you guys participate. Just a thought out there. You know, you guys give great advice to our listeners, to B3 Nation. And it is just thoughts and advice, everyone. It's not actual investment advice. It's their view of what's going on. But I'm going to recommend everybody read Termination Shock, which is Neil Stevenson's latest novel. It is all about climate change and stuff you're talking about, John. And he, and for those of you who don't know, he wrote Snow Crash. He wrote Cryptonomicon, in which 30 years ago, he predicted the metaverse. He, the word metaverse, the word avatar, the word crypto comes from Neil Stevenson. I swear the guy must have gone back in time you know, went ahead in time and what came back. So it's a fascinating look at what you're talking about, John, about what happens when, you know, U.S. energy heat goes up when, when we keep getting hotter. It's not political. It's a fascinating look at how the, the world might shift and some of the things we're talking about. So I'm tossing that out. That, that is not investment advice. But it's, a, it's a good read, Termination Shock. It, to all of us, I recommend. Cool. I will uh, 
not just take it under consideration, Rob. I'm on a flight tomorrow, so I'll download it tonight and uh, do a little reading on the flight. But, yeah, have you ever read Snow Crash? Yes, love right. And yep. that's the same author, everybody. And by the way, like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, like number of, te- of iconic tech people who are like, I read that book, you know, 25 years ago and it set my mindset. Like I, I, as far as other news that I've seen today, Rob, that was kind of interesting. I thought that this uh, inform uh, piece of legislation that worked its way through, um, it's called the Inform Consumers Act. And it's a law that's basically set up to address what Target and Walmart have uh, been complaining about. And that is not just the sale of counterfeit products, but basically the, the theft that has been going on um, from many of these big retail stores, which measures in the billions of dollars. Um, I, I mean, I believe I'm, I'm not going to be. certain of this one, but I thought Target told us that they lost $600 million through the theft that has gone on from people breaking into their stores um, or just coming in without breaking in during regular hours and trotting out thousands of dollars worth of uh, goods. And they're saying that the organized groups that are doing this now are supposedly going to be facing $50,000 in fines, and that this was bipartisan legislation because so many of us have been calling out this kind of behavior where, for instance, the Lululemon um, fired, I think, a couple employees that took pictures and turned those pictures over to the police of people that were stealing things in their store and then those two employees got fired. Not the people stealing didn't get in trouble, but the people that hey, were. Are, are you serious? Oh, completely, completely serious. Oh, yep. And so you, you know, it's obviously Walgreens has been impacted by that. They didn't talk about that as on today's Walgreens Boots Alliance uh, numbers that were so horrific that they missed by so much. But we do know that they've abandoned many of their stores in San Francisco, um, in particular in the downtown area. And, you know, Starbucks did the same. It's a question of uh, if the local uh, uh, jurisdictions will not um, basically defend these retailers. In many cases, the retailers will pull out and leave. Um, and so for the organized crime that goes on in here, basically where people are sent into these stores with a shopping list, um, now at least there is this bipartisan legislation um, that will, at, at least in some cases, address this. And it's called the Inform Consumers Act. So uh, here's to that. But hopefully we'll see more jurisdictions electing to hold criminals to account when they do come in and uh, basically wreck it for everybody. Is that, and we're going to move to crypto in a second, but John, is that what, what is that crime you're talking about, that level of, of, of loss, is that being baked in by the market? I mean, is that partly why Walgreens numbers are so bad? I mean, is this actually affecting their, their performance in the markets or have they just factored that in and they're writing it off? Like it's a huge loss, but they're just kind of, you know, the markets are like, yeah, you're just writing off the loss from, from theft. Yeah. They've informed the market that they've been closing these stores and what the losses were in, in particular in the big stores that they were closing. And, you know, they can't really sugarcoat it. Um, you know, they, Bezos famously had, uh, a lot of uh, cameras and things set up to watch their big warehouses to make sure things didn't go through employee theft. But now, obviously, this is way beyond employee theft. This is theft by these organized groups that come in. And like I say, couldn't say it any more plainly. They're coming in with a shopping list and going out with those goods um, and those will be some of the people that will be targeted by this uh, act. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. 
Well, let's let's keep an eye on it. Um, it is Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. It is time to move into our crypto segment. Um, and of course, uh, John and Alex, you participate in that as well. But but Alex, you're up on deck. We've got, listen, we've, we've been talking about it for a while, the movement of these big institutional players, um, you, you know, the, the TradFi juggernauts, Fidelity now, you know, wanting to get a spot BTC ETF. Alex, what, what is a spot BTC ETF in case some of our audience doesn't know? And what does it mean that these big players are doing it? I'm not, I'm not talking your tinfoil hat thing. What does it mean in practical terms? Yeah, absolutely, Rob. Um, you know, a spot ETF, exchange-traded fund, uh, you're able to trade in and out of much like a standard equity. Um, so what the what a spot BTC ETF will do will buy uh, Bitcoin um, at market price at spot price, and it'll index. Uh, you know, depending on where it bought, more up or down, you're buying the share value, and it will allow you to have liquidity to buy or sell the ETF. Think of it as an equity which is backed by true Bitcoin uh, bought at spot price on the exchange um, without actually having to custody it yourself. So it takes a lot of the legwork out of the average retail uh, investor who may not know much about uh, cryptocurrency, may not know much about Bitcoin, um, but this is a very safe way for them to have exposure to it uh, in the retail markets. Also, uh, there's crypto IRAs, which will allow uh, Bitcoin be held in an IRA as well, so that when you, you know, if you hold it to maturity to when you want to sell it and you retire, uh, you're not paying tax on the capital gains. So, Alex, does that mean if I have an account at Fidelity and if they have, if they get approved, I, I ask my, my, my investment person or I do it myself, I go, I want to move some i want to move a little into bitcoin is it is it that simple just the same way if you like i want to put some money into these stocks over here i want to put some into the in, into the bitcoin portion or is it an entirely separate thing no absolutely it will be as simple as it by the queues if you want to buy spy it'll be that simple uh you will log into your dashboard um you will if if, if you have purchased ibm or or if you've purchased apple before this will be that easy through the same exact process. And what does that mean for the bigger space? What does that mean for the bigger space in terms of of, of a recovery kind of catalyst, right? I mean, is this, I know you have trepidations about what's underneath this and around a USDC stable coin and all that, but is there, is this in some ways a legitimizing of the crypto space as more institutional players get in it and it makes it harder for the regulators or the SEC to come after it or not at all? Here, here's how I'm looking at it right now. You know, we just uh, on, a, on the previous, um, what was it? Jeez, I don't even know what today is. Uh, Sunday, um, about the narrative of Wall Street being the crypto rescuer. And that is kind of where what's solidifying here. Um, you know, listen, Bitcoin's up 13% this past week, hitting the 31,000 mark on two instances of ETF news alone. Okay. We're also showing increased trading volumes, confirming partition, uh, um, market dominance staying over 50% of Bitcoin. Uh, so I, I do believe that the narrative or Wall Street being the rescuer kind of is starting to uh, cement itself with all these big names running into it. Now, Journey Lair, who is uh, over at Circle, um, he believes that an ETF uh, approval will be the recovery catalyst the market desperately needs right now. Journey is the CEO of USDC, stablecoin issuer Circle, which we've spoken about when I have had my tin cap on, uh, said in an interview with the World Economic Forum that the expectation of an approval is based on the fact that we've already overcome Many of the concerns that the regulators have asked, and if you've been in this space at all over the last couple of years, you know, back in 2018, 2019, when this started to actually get put on the radar, uh, the market went bananas. Okay. Uh, the problem is, is over the next couple of years, the, the news cycle was baked into the price and no one really cared. Well, we're at a vulture time right now 
we're vulnerable, uh, or I say we, Bitcoin, I mean, this is what I do for a living. So Bitcoin is vulnerable. So I tend to agree with Jeremy's statement. Um, I think one of the, uh, you know, one of the large concerns in the first round of filings a few years ago was volatility and the harm it may possess to retail consumers. It wasn't resolved, obviously, but equities during the period afterwards, and these are kind of some of the concerns that have been squashed with the uh, regulators, is that equities proved to be more volatile in a handful of quarters. So I think it, it showed a quality between both of the markets. And at this point, I think it would be discriminatory not to give it a fair shake. So at the risk of oversimplifying it, Alex, is it, is it fair to say that the BlackRock and the Fidelity bids for, for Bitcoin ETS might ultimately be a good thing? Not, not, assuming other factors are there, that it might actually mean more crypto acceptance, more crypto use, maybe less less regulator oversight or is it in your mind ultimately just a red herring no i don't think it's a red herring. listen is this a direction i i wanted to go down or i believe the the market should have gone down uh having the blue chip names on wall street you know be the ones that brought this to market first no absolutely not i will i'm i'm in favor of the innovators i'm in favor of the crypto native uh firms that have done all the legwork uh, to to bring it to this point. So, um, but I don't think it's a red area. I think it's reality. I think we went through a, a, a year of extreme bad actors, uh, a year of extreme volatility and retail losses. Um, it's just the only plausible solution in order to right the ship, so to speak, and stabilize the market. And going forward, we'll see what crypto regulation clarity looks like. Um, but in the meantime, I think with all the uh, mud- the muddied waters that are going on right now, that this is the a spot ETF approval be the to uh, a starting point in stabilization. Well, and and last thought on this, and John, you know, you and Alex and I have all talked about this before, as well as Mark. But I think Mark's not with us at the moment. Is that did TradFi and, and crypto? maybe ultimately more merging than one replacing the other. You know, Bitcoin maximalists are like Bitcoin will replace all currency versus they work together. Would this be a version of, of that kind of happening, seeing these major platforms, these made the fidelities, the BlackRock, allowing you to interact in Bitcoin, in, in crypto the way you would with other traditional equities? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think this, this becomes a maximalist uh, type environment. Um, and it broke up a little there, so I hope I'm answering the question. Oh no, I'm As saying you know, I'm not. A, I'm not saying I'm saying the maximalists say that, but this would suggest an integration. No, this is an integration. Um, listen, they're starting with the blue chips. Uh, these are the easy things. There's a lot of crap uh, in crypto that shouldn't even be here. Ninety five of it. Um, this is the market that's going to be uh, above board in the regulated sector right now, uh, and I'm sure. You know, Maxis have a peak. And by the way, I don't dislike Maxis. I love everybody's view of things. But there's more to the crypto world in my head uh, than just Bitcoin. Um, but I think you're going to have the blue chips up top. And we're going to see how that fares. And the government is going to oversee and, and pick, take copious notes on that. And then we'll expand from there. But it's we're so early. This is going to take time. Interesting. Let, Nick, let me bring you in. Last topic. Um for the day let's talk a minute about gaming web3 gaming you know we talked i talked about it before i think we did it on our twitter spaces um i i, I definitely had chris barnes from from eos and and helios on a roundtable talking about gamestop partnering with eos uh to to essentially or with telos essentially to create an overlap to web2 web3 web3 games have not done well they've been slow People don't like them. They want their Web 2 game. They would like to move assets around. They would like some of those features, the ability to take your stuff with you, move it, sell it, rent it. Are we seeing some new developments in in the Web 3 gaming space? 
Yeah. Um, so I personally am a big believer in the future of gaming. Um, I don't know, you know, it's, it's really tough to say what uh, percentage of the market eventually will be, you know, a web two or a web three game, meaning something that runs, you know, let's, let's say on Ethereum versus something that runs on private servers, um, you know, in, in California or whatever. So either that, that is yet to be seen, but you know, when we think about gaming itself, there's a massive amount of people who continue and 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 hop on gaming platforms every single year. And in, there are certain games that you can sell skins, like like Counter Strike is probably the most famous one where there's skins uh, for for weapons that sell for you know a million dollars or more on these third party markets. Now, uh, if you just kind of add those two up, you have a you have a growing user base, and you have you have demand for in game items that can be traded for real cash. So so that tells me from an investor and, and, and long-term outlook focus that eventually uh, the, the Web2 companies will adopt this model in some way, shape, or form in which they have in-game marketplaces or sponsored marketplaces to trade the assets. And they'll uh, give opportunities to players to earn from gaming. Now, I don't think you'll be able to um, have a living playing you know grand theft auto or whatever the game is but you'll certainly have an opportunity to earn some of your initial investment back most of these games cost 60 80 100 in-game items can cost 20 to 50 dollars. so if you have if you if you pay up front 100 200 and you have the opportunity to earn that money back or potentially more that's just going to bring in more gamers now i do believe that web 3 has the rails already to make this easy seamless and secure but it's going to be up to these large companies to build Build a game that adopts this type of model, and then I believe that other companies, you know, Web three included, will then, um, you know, use that momentum, use that waterfall to then build games that people want. Because at right. the end of the so will, after Nick, will it be will it be the game? So will it be the the Web two guys in your mind who you think step up and do it? Or I'm, I have notes here like Mythical Games got a big, you know, thirty seven million infusion. Arc uh, invested in Dreesen Orwich, put the money in, I think. Avalanche back, Pixie on Games is getting money. Like, is it going to be the Web 3 companies or the Web 2 ones that go, we're just going to take over the space? In my opinion, I think Web3 is going to have a very difficult time usurping uh, market share in the gaming space until a Web2 company or a Web2 game adopts a mix of traditional gaming and this Web3 model that we're discussing. It's it's the rumor that Grand Theft Auto 6, I believe, is going to have something similar to what we're talking about. So if that goes well in the next year or two, then that's pretty much the signal for everybody else to jump on that model and evolve that model gamers are still uh you know you picky it, it seems in terms of being sold this type of model even though they can obviously earn money so it, it, it's an overton window effect in politics it's going to take time for this type of model to shift into a favorable opinion from the market but once it does i believe it's going to absolutely take over and gaming is going to you know go bonkers especially with ai and vr i love that insight hey alex you used to race cars for real are you going to get into Web3 uh, racing games? Uh, no, I'm a little old now. That was a long time ago, back with the Model Ts. Um, no, listen, hey, you know, the thing... Alex undersells himself. You, you guys look the thing is, the furious race car driver. The thing is with Web3 uh, games is they started out, you know, listen, the Genesis was 2017. They started out with really rudimentary games that uh, looked like your Nintendo in 1984 when it launched, okay? It, it was pathetic. Um, the thing that's giving anybody hope right now is the fact that they're doing, you know, they're, they're vowing to make more AAA-type games like the middle market and large studios do. And AAA games, folks, is like, you know, Grand Theft Auto, you know, Vive or... Or, or, you know, any of those things. Um, it, it, what, what they need to do is design good games like that. Then they need to good, put it, install good play to earn um, and create value for currency, as Nick was saying, such as skins and various options that you can uh, create commerce within that ecosystem. So until they do that, I'm not going to play a pixelated game on my phone. I'm 47 years old. I got a lot of uh, better stuff to do. Um, and when they create a great racing game or another game that's uh, a AAA game, yeah, I'll partake all day long. I love it. I love it. He is, he was, I'm going to say it again. 
look up Alex, race car driver. I'm not making that stuff up. You guys, it's been a really fun show. B3 Nation, we love you listening to the Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain Show. Tuesday, tonight, Thursday, 5.30 Eastern, and a Sunday edition also at 5.30. Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lepresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.